there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. About 30 years ago, I was living in a very strange place among very strange people to whom I was not just strange, but really a freak. I was living in a small clearing in the eastern jungle of Ecuador in a place called Tueno, and I lived in a house with no walls and no floors and no furniture. It was a mud floor. It was six poles with a thatched roof, and between two of the poles that held the roof up, I strung my hammock, and underneath my hammock on a bamboo slab on the mud floor was my daughter Valerie, who slept on the slab while I slept in the hammock. The people that I was living with were called Aucas, A-U-C-A. They were Stone Age people, totally naked. Most of them had literally never seen a stranger, not just a white woman, but they had never seen any color stranger. They had never seen any other Indians except themselves. And so I was to them an unimaginably strange freak because I was, for one thing, a very strange color, pitifully pale. My hair, they said, looked like palm fiber. My eyes looked like a jaguar's. I was a head and shoulders taller than the tallest woman they had ever seen. And everything that I did was weird. I used to be wakened in the morning between two and three, usually, because that was when the Alka's social hour began. Now, people in our country think that sounds rather strange, but when you think about it, it makes a whole lot more sense than our idea of coming home after an exhausting day of work and trying to prop your eyelids open and look scintillating and fun and have a social hour before you drop into bed. The Indians had the sense to come back from their plantations or their hunting, cook and eat whatever there was to eat for supper, and go immediately to bed, which meant that they were usually in bed by 6.30 or quarter to 7. The sun went down at 6.15, 365 days a year. Some of you may not have thought about the fact that Ecuador is a Spanish word that means equator, and so this is a small country right on the equator, and consequently there is no difference in the length of days. The sun came up at about 6.15. But between 2 and 3, the Indians would usually have their social hour, which very often began with a song. And I would begin to hear this song in my dreams, and it would gradually sort of uh, make me come to. But I didn't ever quite get onto their schedule, so I wasn't very eager to join in this social hour between 2 and 3 in the morning. Sometimes it wasn't until 4, but at any rate, I sort of faked being asleep for about as long as I could. And the song had a maximum of three notes, sometimes two. And usually it went something like this. Well, I will give you 
mercy, I didn't sing it as long as they did. I have counted as many as 70 repetitions of verse 1. And then they go on to etc., etc. And finally, I would open my eyes, whereupon I would see two pairs of bright black eyes looking down into my eyes from the house next door. The house next door was so close that the two thatched roofs touched in this fashion, and there were two teenage boys who had appointed themselves observers of this foreigner in their midst and commentators. And so they would be lying flat on their stomachs on this six-foot-high bamboo platform, looking down into my eyes, waiting for that moment when my eyes would open, whereupon the first announcement of the day was made by which means she's awake. And that stunning piece of news would be relayed all the way around the clearing in case anybody had missed it. Everybody had a house with no walls, so you didn't have to get out of bed and have this social hour. You know, everybody was lying in their hammocks. The women were cooking breakfast without getting out of their hammocks. They just set the leftovers from last night on the fire, which was right beside their hammocks. And so it was very relaxed and very leisurely, and the announcement would be relayed around the clearing. And then I would finally get myself out of my hammock when it began to get just light enough for me to walk across the clearing. And I would unwrap myself from the blanket in which I slept, which was one of the strange things that, that I did because they slept totally naked, except for the piece of string that they did wear around their hips. It was not a G-string, it was a piece of string. And after the first year when I was able to speak their language and ask foolish questions, I asked the foolish question that any foreigner would ask, why? the string. And they looked at me in utter shock and said, well, surely you wouldn't expect us to go around naked, would you? <laughs> anyway, I'd take, I would unwrap myself from the blanket, hang the blanket up underneath the thatched roof, which was the only place high up near the ridge pole that would keep things dry, because of course when it rains, it can rain horizontally in the jungle and it went straight through the house. Then I would take out of a little rubber bag that was suspended in an Indian carrying net, also from the ridge pole, a small transistor radio. This was back in the very beginning days of transistors, and you could not buy a transistor transceiver on the market, so some missionary radio engineers had made this little radio just for me and Rachel Saint, the other woman that was living there in the clearing with me and my daughter. And I would carry that radio across the clearing to attach it to a bamboo pole, which was on the far side. And as I walked across the clearing, the second announcement would go out, which was, which means, there she goes with that radio again. <laughs> and as I walked across the clearing, every step would be accompanied by sound effects in unison. Eh, 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 eh. Well, now, you know, if you want to make your next-door neighbor feel really ridiculous, stick your head out the kitchen window while he's walking out to the garage and accompany his footsteps with eh, 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 etc. You know, I didn't really know how to respond to this. You don't know whether to walk according to the rhythm that you've started on or to shift your gait and throw everybody off 
or what to do, but eventually you settle for the fact that you are expected to be nonstop entertainment, and you might as well just be that. So this was just the beginning of the day. I'm not going to take you minute by minute through the day. But I was there, obviously, because I was a missionary. And I had to learn an unwritten language. No outsider, nobody that was not an Alka had ever learned that language before. They had no writing of any kind. They had no knowledge of the gospel or of anything that they were missing out on. They were very happy people. They seemed to be very contented. They had everything they needed. I wasn't there because they needed clothes or food or education or even medicine. They were almost idyllically happy. And of course, the usual questions which get fired at missionaries were even more painful for me when people's uh, attitude was, well, why in the world don't you busybodies, you missionaries, leave people alone? They're perfectly happy the way they are. Well, obviously, I was there because of a commission that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Every people and tribe and tongue and nation needs to hear this message. People have sometimes asked me, how many Indians did you convert? And the answer, of course, is zero. I never converted anybody. It was my job to present the message. It was the job of the Holy Spirit of God to convert them. And there were people who listened and there were people who didn't. Well, what was I doing in a place like that, in the remote areas of the Amazon rainforest? Well, I'm going to start way back and tell you just a little bit about what got me into that strange place among those very strange people. I grew up in a very strong Christian home where Christianity was a seven-day-a-week thing. My parents were both earnest Christians who practiced what they preached, and we were read two out of the Bible twice a day. We were prayed for and with more than twice a day, and we had missionaries visiting constantly. My parents had been missionaries. We read missionary books. We went to missionary meetings. We looked at thousands of terrible missionary slides and were bored and whatnot occasionally, but I can remember the fascination with which we children would sit around the table and listen to missionary stories from the mouths of these great saints. And so from my earliest memory, I hoped that God would call me to be a missionary. I thought it sounded like the most exciting, thrilling life in the world, and I would certainly recommend it to anybody who might be considering such a life himself. It was when I was about 10 years old that I made a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ, although I had probably made such a profession privately much sooner. But it was when I was 12 that it came through to me that if Jesus Christ was my Savior, then Jesus Christ had also to be my Lord. In other words, if he had saved me, if he loved me enough to die for me, then I owed to him all that I had. And so I came across a prayer at that time written by a young missionary woman who had visited in our home when she was on her way to China. When I was a very small child, I remembered Betty Scott Stam's visit, 
And I remembered also my father's bringing home a newspaper one evening a few years later telling about how Betty Scott Stam and her husband John had been captured by Chinese communists, marched through the streets of a Chinese village, and beheaded. It was when I was 12 that I came across her prayer of commitment, which says this, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me with thy Holy Spirit, use me as thou wilt, send me where thou wilt, work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. It was when I was, I suppose, 15 or 16 that I began to pray that the Lord would give me a godly husband someday, and I can remember sitting down and writing out the qualifications which I would require in a husband in the back of my diary. And I didn't meet that man until I was a college student, but I began to observe a certain man at a distance on the campus whose name was Jim Elliott. My brother Dave was on the wrestling squad with Jim, and Dave was always saying to me, you got to meet this guy, Elliot. I mean, Elliot's a terrific guy. you got to meet him. Well, Dave was my little brother, so I wasn't very excited about meeting my little brother's friends. And it took a while before I actually did meet him, and then I went to wrestling matches and watched him wrestle. He was very visible on that campus. He was a leader, president of the Foreign Missions Fellowship, kind of a guy that some of his fellow students avoided because he would go up and grab guys by the arm or the lapel and say, hey buddy, how come you're not going to the mission field? And if they stumbled and stuttered around and said, well, I don't know, I mean, like, you know, I just don't really feel called, Jim's response was, you don't need a call, you need a kick in the pants. He was a clown. He was very visible on the campus because he was an entertainer when anybody wanted to be entertained in any group or banquet or program, they would call on Jim Elliott and he would stand up at a moment's notice and he could recite several of the poems of Robert Service, such as The Face on the Barroom Floor or The Shooting of Dan McGrew or The Cremation of Sam McGee. He was also an athlete, as I mentioned. He was a wrestler. They used to call him the India Rubber Man because he could be tied into knots that you wouldn't believe by his opponents, but never once was he pinned. Besides being a spiritual leader and a clown and an athlete, he was also a scholar. He and I had the same major, and that's how I finally got to know him. We were majoring in classical Greek, and every single time there was what we called an honors convocation on the campus, Jim Elliott's name was read out as at the top of the list, usually, and he graduated eventually with highest honor in classical Greek. Well, I, along with a whole lot of other girls on that campus, thought Jim Elliott was not only um, a clown and a spiritual leader and an athlete and a scholar and all that, but terribly handsome and utterly unavailable, as far as we could tell. He never dated anybody. And I discovered that his reason, I learned this through my brother Dave, was that he had decided when he came to college that he was going to get two degrees. One was a BA, which that college was qualified to confer. The other was the AUG, which no college is qualified to confer. It means approved unto God. 
And Jim had decided that if he was going to get both of those degrees, the most important of which was the AUG, then he was going to have to eliminate from his schedule some things which most college men would consider necessary. And one of those things was women. He had decided when he was in high school that girls were fascinating and a terrible waste of time and money. And so he decided that he would give up on the dating thing when he got to college. And the other thing that he gave up, which very few college men are prepared to do, was an hour of sleep in the morning before breakfast. He would get himself out of bed in order to spend an hour with God, reading his Bible and praying. And during his junior year, he began a spiritual journal. And those journals are quoted, as I mentioned, in the biography. When he was about 22 years old, he wrote in that journal these remarkable words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Think of those words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm not sure what Jim was thinking at that time. The diary entry stands alone. There isn't anything else on that particular day. There's no exposition of it. But I think it's another way of putting what Jesus said. If anyone will let himself be lost for my sake, he will find his true self. He that loseth his life shall find it is the old translation. Well, I was a senior when Jim was a junior, and I remember when our yearbooks came out, it was just a few weeks before my graduation, and I was very eager, along with a few hundred other girls, to get Jim Elliott's autograph. Everybody used to try to get their friends to autograph their pictures. And so I joined, I suppose, a long line of girls. I don't really remember whether that's the case, but probably it was, because everybody thought he was so attractive. And I had been to my personal dismay, discovering the fact that I was really terribly interested in this man, so far as to say that maybe I was actually falling in love with him, which I knew was utterly ridiculous, because he was what we used to call a BMOC, a big man on campus, or a BTO, a big-time operator, and I was just a TWO, a a teeny-weeny operator, and I didn't think there was a chance in the world that he would ever look twice at me. I was a wallflower all the way through high school and college. But when he signed his name, I hoped most fervently that he would add something besides just the signature, and I was delighted to see that he did. I didn't see what it was. He closed the book and handed it back to me. I quickly found the page, saw that he had written a scripture verse, 2 Timothy 2.4. Well, girls, you can imagine how long it took me to get back to the dormitory and grab my Bible to look up that verse. And this is what I found. A soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. (laughs) He must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. And I had liked everything that I knew about Jim Elliott up to that point, but I liked that the most. That here was a man who had chosen a master. Here was a man who had made one final, irrevocable, lifetime decision. 
that he would be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And nothing and nobody, including me or any other girl, was going to deter him or in any way deflect his attention from that sincere and sole purpose of his life, to be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. That is commitment. You make up your mind about one thing, and you do that thing no matter what it costs. It was another 20th century example to me of what Betty Scott Stamm had exemplified. Commitment to Jesus Christ. And as I told you, I had made a similar commitment at the age of 12. And it was just a few weeks later, after this signing of the yearbook, that Jim actually asked me to go for a walk with him, to my utter astonishment, and within the first five minutes confessed that he was in love with me. Well, it looked like a very strange turn of events because I was graduating, he was not. He lived in Oregon, I lived in New Jersey. I was going to Africa, he was going to South America. There wasn't a chance in the world, humanly speaking, that we would ever see each other again. And both of us were keenly aware of the fact that here were feelings, passions, which were quite beyond our control. And so we agreed together that we would turn over this love that we felt to Jesus Christ. And I'm absolutely convinced that there is no more crucial testing ground in the life of a young person than this matter of the love life. And it was just one more area of Jim's life which he turned over to Jesus Christ and said, Lord, it's yours, you handle it. If you want to bring us together again, you know how to do that. Well, that's too long a story to tell you tonight. It is told in detail in his biography and also in a book called Passion and Purity. But I mention it as being one of the straws in the wind that indicated that this man was dead serious about obedience to Jesus Christ. He said to me, I am not asking you to marry me. I am not even asking you to wait for me. I am not asking for any kind of a commitment. We didn't talk about commitment. We didn't even use the word relationship, which seems to be so big in every young person's vocabulary these days. He said, I can't do any of those things because as far as I know, God wants me to remain single, perhaps for the rest of my life. And so it was as if he was saying, case closed, see you around, but there wasn't much chance that he was going to see me around. Anyway, I have entitled his biography, Shadow of the Almighty. And I take the words, of course, from Psalm 91. You that live in the shelter of the Most High and lodge under the shadow of the Almighty, who say, The Lord is my safe retreat, my God, the fastness in which I trust. He himself will snatch you away from fowler's snare or raging tempest. He will cover you with his pinions, and you shall find safety beneath his wings. You shall not fear. The Lord is a safe retreat. You have made the Most High your refuge. I'd like to ask tonight, what does it mean to live in the shadow of the Almighty? It means, for one thing, to put your faith 
your total trust in the character of God. He does not give us a blueprint of what he's planning to do, to do with us. He says, follow me. The Lord is my shepherd. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness. I put my faith in his mercy, his power, his sovereignty. He's got the whole world right there in his hands, hasn't he? I put my faith in his essential goodness and, of course, most of all, in his love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loved me and gave himself for me. He's worth trusting. And so the lessons of my youth were commitment, and I saw that commitment in my parents. I saw that commitment in Betty Scott Stam. I saw that commitment in Jim Elliott. God tested the validity of that commitment on the ground of our love life. He said, will you trust me for this, the most stormy passion that any young person feels? If that area can be turned over to Jesus Christ, then anything can be turned over to him. And I often say to young people, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of your love life, Jesus Christ is not Lord. I realized that I had two choices, either to give my life to God because he was God and he would therefore take the responsibility, or not give my life to God because he was not trustworthy and then I would be the one who had to take the responsibility. And it certainly seemed to me that the former was the more logical choice. Anyway, I haven't got time to tell you the long story of how God eventually brought Jim and me together after five and a half years of waiting. But both of us chose to go with him rather than without him. And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, then you must do three things. You must give up your right to yourself, and you must take up your cross, and you must follow me. Now, you can go with any other master that you want to, but if you want to go with Jesus Christ, these are the unequivocal conditions. Give up your right to yourself. And so Jim Elliott had done that. By the time he and I were married, long, since, long before we were married, but we were married in 1953, and in 1955 we were working on our station in the eastern jungle of Ecuador with the Quechua Indians one day when Nate Saint, the pilot who served our station with Missionary Aviation Fellowship, came in with an extraordinary piece of news, which was that he had discovered the whereabouts of the Alka tribe. Everybody knew that the Alcas were there somewhere in the jungle, but nobody had any idea exactly where, and Nate had flown over their territory many times without finding their houses. On this occasion, he told us that he had not only found a house, but it was inhabited, there were naked people outside, there were fresh plantations, there was smoke coming through the roofs of the houses, and so they began something then which was called Operation Alca. Jim Elliott Nate Saint and another young missionary by the name of Ed McCulley began to fly over their territory dropping gifts. Nate did the flying, Ed and Jim took turns flying with him and dropping gifts to these people, hoping that this would reduce their hostility toward strangers because every stranger that had ever gone into their territory 
had been killed. A good many people had gone in there looking for oil and rubber and gold, and not one had ever returned. So the men were praying, as missionaries had been praying for years, for an entrance into this tribe. And it was after about 15 weeks of dropping these gifts and receiving what seemed to be very friendly signals from the people on the ground that the men felt it was time to attempt to go in and reach them face to face. And so it was on New Year's night that the men met together for the last time before they said goodbye to their wives and went into the edge of Alca territory. By this time there were five men, two others had been asked to join them. And they sang together a hymn, We Rest on Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender. And they went in, they set up a treehouse for safety during the night, a little house that they could sleep in, and they prayed that God would bring the Alcas to their camp. They didn't want to go directly to the Alca houses, fearing that that might offend them, but they knew that the Indians would certainly know that they were there. We had lived with Indians long enough to know that you don't go anywhere near their territory without their realizing it. They seem to have almost the keenest hearing and sense of smell as a dog. And so the men prayed that God would bring them to them, which is exactly what God did. About five days later, they suddenly heard a shout. They looked across the river, and here came an Alka man with two Alka women out of the green of the jungle. Utterly self-possessed, fearless, relaxed, they just came across the river. They began to talk in a language that the men couldn't understand a word of. They actually received the gifts that the men had to give them and ate a hamburger with ketchup on it and drank some lemonade. So there wasn't any question in the minds of the missionaries that the Indians trusted them. And then, to prove it, finally, the man actually accepted a ride in the airplane. So the pilot took him up and flew over his own houses so that he could circle around and look down and shout out the door. They, he took the door off and he could actually see the faces of the people on the ground and the people could see that it was their own man that was up there in the plane. So there wasn't any question in the minds of the missionaries that everything was going wonderfully well. The people had accepted their friendship and they radioed back to us wives. We were on our stations telling us how excited they were about what had happened. And two days later we got another radio message from Nate saying that he had just flown over the Alka houses. Three Indians had gone back into the jungle that same afternoon. But two days later, Nate saw ten Indians headed for the missionary camp. And so it was with tremendous excitement that he radioed to us. They were hoping that perhaps these ten would be a delegation inviting them to go into their actual village or houses. And so he told us that, that he would call again at 4.30 that afternoon. But at 4.30, there was nothing but silence. We knew that something serious might have happened. We also thought that maybe the radio wasn't functioning, which was a very ordinary occurrence in that humidity. But before the men had gone, you can be sure that all of us wives had prayed for their physical safety. We knew the risks that they were taking. They knew them. We agreed that it was the thing that they should do. It was in obedience to Jesus Christ. It wasn't an adventure. It wasn't a stunt. It wasn't for any other reason except a very simple act of obedience.
but we had prayed for their safety. And I thought of this psalm. It says in verse 7, A thousand can fall at your side, ten thousand close at hand, but you it shall not touch. His truth will be your shield and your rampart. And they had sung that hymn, We Rest on Thee. I also remembered what had happened to Betty Scott Stamm and her husband John, and I knew a good many other missionary stories like that. I remembered some of the things that happened in Bible stories. You remember that Daniel was delivered from lions and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was delivered, were delivered from fiery furnace, and Paul and Silas and Peter were delivered from prison. John the Baptist was not delivered from prison. He had his head chopped off, and Stephen was stoned to death. And of course, the Son of Man himself was committed into the hands of, the scripture says, evil men, and nailed to a cross. We follow one who was crucified, and the second condition of his words about discipleship is that you must take up your cross and follow. I knew all those things. I knew that the men had gone with their eyes wide open. It was five days later that we learned that they were all speared to death. The word that came to me when I knew that Jim was missing were from Isaiah 43, Verse 2, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God. And I was aware that God was not saying that I would not have to go through those deep waters. Of course, I was continuing to pray desperately, as were all of us and many thousands of people around the world by that time, praying that the men would come back safely. But I knew that there are times when a disciple has to go through deep waters and through the fire. And I also knew that the rights to Jim Elliot's life and to the lives of each of those men, Ed and Nate and Pete and Raj, had long since been committed, utterly and irrevocably and unconditionally committed to Jesus Christ. The rights had been turned over. The claim was his. And so when we found out that the men were all dead, we could hardly be too surprised. Of course it was a shock, but in a sense it was not a surprise. We had the same feeling that anybody has, it won't happen to us. We knew it could, but we always think it won't happen. You know, every time you and I get out on a highway in a car, we know perfectly well that we could be dead in a second. But we don't lie awake nights worrying about it, and we all think it's not going to happen to me. But there are calculated risks that we all take in ordinary everyday life. And a disciple takes calculated risks which may seem greater at times and perhaps more deliberate. And when 
the word went around the world and people began coming to us asking for explanations as to what in the world these men went in there for and of course there was a certain amount of editorializing about these blankety blank fools why don't they keep their noses out of other people's business etc etc when they came to us and said why did they do this i said to some of the reporters and photographers and people like that well i know my answer is not going to make a whole lot of sense to you but this is the straight truth they did it because they believed it was what god wanted them to do and they believed that they had a piece of good news that they needed to share with these indians who had never heard it and then sometimes i gave them this verse from 1 john 2:17 which i think is an adequate explanation the world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear but the man who is following the will of god is part of the permanent and cannot die there is nothing worth living for unless it's worth dying for and as jim had written in his diary he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep and how many things can you keep in this life he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose the man who is following the will of god is part of the permanent and cannot die now you can be sure that i did some long pondering and some plain and fancy thinking about the fact that these men had trusted god to be their shield and he had allowed them to be speared to death i thought about this psalm 91 you that dwell in the secret place of the most high and lodge under the shadow of the almighty i thought of the mystery that is involved there and i would like you to ponder that yourself when you hear facts such as these so stark so undeniable that five men who had for no reason other than obedience to Jesus Christ left what could have been very lucrative careers in this country and had gone to the jungle of Ecuador quite simply to take the gospel to people who had never heard and God had enabled them to find the Alcas enabled them to receive what appeared to be very friendly response from the Alcas led them one step at a time over a period of 15 weeks every step covered by prayer taken them in there allowed them to have a perfectly friendly contact and then allowed them to be speared to death what does your faith do with those data does it tremble and totter and disintegrate I say to you tonight to follow the almighty the most high is sooner or later to come up against the unexplainable we have to come to terms with mystery don't we because god is inscrutable and as my second husband addison leach who was a theologian and a philosopher used to say you'll never unscrew the inscrutable 
There are mysteries there that he's not going to explain to us because we're infants and the father cannot explain to the little child everything that he's doing and why. And people say to me, how did you handle bitterness against God in the death of your first husband or deaths of two husbands? And I can only say that there has never been a doubt in my mind, no matter what the circumstances appeared to tell me, but that God loved me. Jesus loves me. This I know. How do I know that? Because of all the wonderful things that I see around me happening? Because of the fact that everything works out nicely in my life and in the lives of all those that I love? No, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible, what? Tells me so. He loved me and gave himself for me. And so I stayed on my station. I'd say to you tonight, any of you whose hearts are broken, who may have recently lost someone or for any reason are suffering deeply, there is no consolation like obedience. And I knew that if I left the station, there wouldn't be anybody else there. Jim and I had been alone on that station, except for my 10-month-old baby. And so I stayed there and worked, continued working with the Kichwas, and I prayed what seemed like a very foolish prayer at the time. I said, Lord, if there's anything you would like me to do about the Alcas, I'm available, thinking that that was a safe prayer and that God was not likely to take me up on that. Have you ever prayed, Thy will be done, and then been utterly astonished that God actually took you up on it? Well, you better duck if you pray, Thy will be done. But I said, Lord, I'm available, and to my amazement, he did take me up on that, and that's why I was there in that strange clearing that I described at the beginning of my talk. I haven't got time to tell you how I got there, but that also is told in a book called The Savage, My Kinsman. That took a new commitment. I had given myself to Christ at 10 and again at 12, and again over the subject of, of loving Jim Elliot. And all throughout our lives, God has another test and another commitment and another requirement for faith. And he says, you trusted me back there, you trusted me there, you trusted me there, now what about this? Now you see, I don't know you and I don't know what God is saying to you tonight. And I don't know what kind of a death God may be asking you to die, perhaps not a physical one today or tomorrow, but he is asking you if you will give up your right to yourself and take up the cross and follow him. I want to testify tonight with all my heart that God has been utterly faithful. He has never broken a promise. He has always shown me that when I thought there were inconsistencies and confusions, that He's still holding me, that underneath are the everlasting arms. And I don't have to understand everything, I just have to obey. And I was consoled through obedience. Whatever there may be in your life of brokenness or loss, maybe you've lost a spouse or a child or your job or your health or maybe your youth, anybody here lost their youth, your strength, your position, your money, I commend to you the shadow of the Almighty. 
that refuge that I have needed so badly so often. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. And it is that bedrock of unshakable faith that has held me through the storms and the deep waters and the fire. And in closing, I want to give you the words that you sang a few minutes ago. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember... The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.